tonight's talk is about anatta. And anatta is sometimes translated as not-self or no permanent abiding self might be perhaps more accurate. But this is a challenging topic. I'll start with how the Buddha dealt with it on one occasion. There was a wanderer, Vashagota, that came to see the Buddha. And he did, went through the usual approaching, washing, sitting to one side. And then Vashagota asked the Blessed One, How is it, Master Gotama? Is there a self? And after Vashagota asked this question, the Buddha was silent. So, giving it another try, Vashagota says, Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? No answer. So, the va wanderer Vashagota rose up from his seat and departed. He gave up. And Ananda says to the Buddha, So how come you didn't answer that question? And this, this is what he says. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer Vashagota, is there a self? Had I answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists. And if when I asked, was asked by him, is there not, no self? I had answered, there is no self. This would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are nihilists annihilationists. If Ananda, when I was asked by Wanderer Vashagoda, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. Would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are not self? No, venerable sir. And if when I had asked by him, is there no, not a self? I had answered, there is no self. The Wanderer Vashagoda already confused, would have fallen into even greater confusion, thinking, it seems that there was a, that their self, that the self I formerly had does not exist now. So basically the Buddha said, eh, this is a little too confusing. I think I'll not give it a go right now. <laughs> I'm in trouble, aren't I? <laughs> So one of the things, though, that helps us get out of this little twist is to recognize that the Buddha gave us a lot of instructions about seeing how the sense that if we have a belief in a solid, permanent sense of self, that it will contribute to our dukkha. It will be the major source of our dukkha. And that practicing and seeing the sense of self and letting go of that, entering into the understanding that there is not a permanent abiding self, is a skillful means that will help us see our way through dukkha. So this does not deny the relative sense of self. 
You know, each of us here is completely unique. Each of us is having our own experience, has our own history, our own body, our own perceptions, consciousness. All of that is true and doesn't change. But the belief that there is something permanent here, this is where we run into trouble. And this is what the Buddha wanted to help us see through. And you can see this is very connected to the talk about impermanence that Kamala was speaking to the other day. There's impermanence running through everything, including us. Just as there is nothing permanent anywhere, we are part of that. We are part of the everything that has no permanent abiding identity or self or anything we can put a finger on. Ajahn Chah says the teaching about self are not true. The teachings about not self are also not true. So he's speaking here very profoundly that we don't want to come down landing somewhere. It's just to grab a hold of another thing. But to we're deconstructing our concepts. We're deconstructing our beliefs and our structures. And this teaching around anatta is a fundamental way of deconstructing. When we investigate carefully, we find we can't find a center, a solid, a permanent. When we're meditating, where do your identities go? Are you male, female, gendered, ungendered? Are you short or tall, angry or happy? Who is it? that is one of these things. They may arise, they have their own display and impacts and effects, but where are they? Where can you actually find them? It's helpful to keep reminding that this impermanent, non-abiding self, the reason we practice seeing this clearly is to be relieved of dukkha. James talked about dukkha last night. And the creation of a sense of self is fundamental in the things he was talking about last night. The way we cling to the story of me. And really this believing in the permanent self sets us up to believe that we can control the me and we should be able to control the world. So there becomes a dissonance between our experience and our self-concept of what our experience should be. So we end up in this dissonance of there is a me here but it's not working out for me. 
Why is that? And we want to be happy. That's understandable. And so we use the strategies we know until we learn differently. And understanding anatta, understanding this allows the undependability, the impermanence that Kamala spoke to. It allows us to see that clearly and to make it workable. As someone mentioned, workability. That it turns out we can be in this ever-changing, dynamic, unpredictable world and be okay. And that's the purpose of this teaching of anatta, to free us rather than as a metaphysical proposition. So why do we form this sense of self? If, if the idea is that this abiding self isn't here, which we'll come back around to, but why do we even form it? What is it if it's going to cause us dukkha? And we think we need it to meet the world. It's selfing, self, is a strategy to get what we need in the world. It's the strategy we learn from very, very young. We create this territory of me. And that clarifies our job of what we're pursuing. That pursuit of pleasure that Temple spoke about. This territory of me wants things to be good for it. Notice, just right now, in this territory of you, are you wanting something? Maybe something as simple as understanding of being free. This wanting something, and then the I co- is co-created in that moment. I remember quite a while ago, it was actually in this hall. I was going along, doing my practice, very steady, just step, step. I remember I walked in the door over there, stepping, feeling the floor. My eye caught out of the corner of its eye a chair. It, was, it wasn't one of these regular chairs. It was a really nice chair. And I immediately thought, now how do you get one of those nice chairs? I need one of those nice chairs. I have a scoliosis in my back. I need that. I'm suffering and nobody's noticing that person. Because it, it was one of the chairs from the uh, council house. So I went from just going step, step, step to being all in a twist. And what changed? A thought and a me that I needed to take care of and guard, protect, bring pleasure to. And I remember a little later walking outside and realizing that the person who had the chair 
was somebody also who they needed um, uh, crutches to get in the door. They were on a scooter. And I was like, oof. I don't need a chair. I'm okay. And I could feel how the compassion for the difficulty that they were working with dissolved this need to protect the territory of me. The Buddha, well, first I'll say, um, this is a quote from Dogen. When the self goes forward and fills the world, this is delusion. Can you feel that? When the self goes out and starts having opinions about everything, needs this, needs that. When the world comes in and fills the self, that is awakening. Perhaps you've had some moments like that where you walk outside and the world just floods in and there's nothing you need. There's no tentacles going out. You're just filled with the world. The sense of self has dissolved in that moment. So the Buddha said, how do we attend? How do we practice this? And he talks about how we attend appropriately and inappropriately. And this is what he says. This is how we at- one attends inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? I think the Buddha was inside our minds, don't you think? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? And he, he goes on to say, if one attends inappropriately in this way, one of six kinds of view arises in him. And I'll read just a couple of them. The view that I have a self arises in one as true and established, or the view I have no self, or the view... It is precisely by means of self that I perceive self, or the view it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self, or the view it is precisely by means of not self that I perceive self arising. It goes on and on. I think you get the picture. This whole this conflagration, that's not a word, um, that um, this whole explosion all around this sense of I, going on and on. And one of the important things the Buddha is pointing to here is a lot of this comes from our telling stories about the past and about the future. That that is one of the primary ways that we create this sense of self.
This sense of self came about very early in us in response to our instinctual needs initially. There's a number of reasons it arises, but it's good to give it credit. We have basic instincts. We need to be fed. We need to be warm. We need to have contact with people. And as uh, someone was describing, I think it was Temple the other day, that at first, you know, there's just the cry because we don't know what, we just are uncomfortable. But then we just start to discover that there's a me here that others and myself can take care of. And we do also come to realize very early that we have a very fragile, undependable experience of our body. That it feels like just the smallest thing can happen and then it's unpleasant. And as we become more aware of this, we strategize. And this strategizing is the selfing activity. And as we get a little older, or even from a young age, we instinctually have some idea, but as we get older, the fear of death starts to come in. And we are strategizing has an undercurrent of this fear of dying. And each of us are this basic instinct then combines with our personal history. Like for instance, I had a personal history around food. So there's a lot of selfing and strategizing that I had to come to see around that. In my family, the food was seen very directly. Food was seen as money and money was short. So if you ate food, you were eating money. And wow, that was really painful. It was like you were taking something from somebody else if you ate food. So I grew up with stories about that there wasn't enough and that I wasn't gonna, that it was better if I wasn't taken care of, if I didn't eat or if I went someplace and the food was free, I better eat a lot of it. Because then I would, boy, I was just, you know, just eating dollar bills. How perfect. Can't live on dollar bills, but sometimes we don't know the difference. And I shared with you earlier about then as I was sitting, I could see the activation of this me trying to, so busy trying to take care of myself, I didn't even know what was happening in the food line. The sense of I and the strategies all coming in. The primary strategy of the I is this push and pull with the world, wanting things and pushing away things. And this is why there is the importance of that seeing the Vedana that Temple spoke about. Because from the Vedana, the Vedana can arise. And if we don't catch it, we go right into creating the I. 
we get stuck in that story and we lose we lose contact with that flow of impermanence now we're grabbing a hold And as I've already indicated, this sense of self, we have an idea that it's me, that I'm an I, but it's not. It's a selfing, it's an activity, a wanting something. They arise simultaneously, the wanting and the me that's wanting. So really it's better to think of the self as selfing, a verb, an activity. And we go through and we we have this one activity of wanting something in one moment. And then in the next moment, we don't want something. And then we have another moment where we remember something that we did. And then we have a plan for the future. And we string all these things together. And we come up with the idea that there's an I in the middle of it all. And all we've done is taken these different moments these different stories and strung them together and made the idea that there's something solid here. Tenzin Palmo says, your sense of I doesn't care if you are happy or sad. It just wants to feel it's me. I think this is really interesting. You might notice this while you're sitting, that you're just sitting there minding your own business. It's all kind of quiet. And then all of a sudden, there's this like, I want something. Or perhaps I should go do something different. And there's actually no need for something different to happen. But it's like, Oh yeah, I've got some agency here. I can make something different happen. And just knowing that, it's like this sense of solidity comes around us. But the cost of that, that constant doing, is dukkha. Now there's a me that needs something to be happy. A moment before, it was just fine. And no matter what we do, but no matter what this selfing activity, whatever it has us do next, it's never perfect and it never lasts. It has to be followed by another activity. So what is it like when the self is not activated? So sometimes we can have that example, we can have that experience even before we come to meditation, perhaps through uh, doing artwork or playing music or very clear and focused athletic activities or, you know, choose the place that you might get lost into something. And in that, There's just, our senses are active. There's an unfolding of one moment to the next. There's not a lot of uh, telling story about myself 
There's not a narrator. It's just going along. And this is a wonderful experience of the self, sense of self being suspended. And it's no wonder that people like to do those things. But the challenge with it is that it's ultimately unsatisfactory because it's activity dependent. As soon as the activity ends, I have a friend who's a, who paints watercolors and she said, that she loved doing these watercolors. And then she started selling them. And she noticed that then she couldn't get lost in it anymore. She started having a story about selling it as she was doing it. And then when she gave up the idea of selling them, then the simplicity of the self, of the not-self experience of just being in the painting returned. There's a Pali word that describes this self-view, and I like the word, it's sakyadidi. It kind of has this sort of a little bit jocular but grippy feeling, sakyadidi. It kind of has a grip on you. It holds, you're hooked. Ajahn Sumedho defines it as a sense of oneself as a separate person identified with body, memories, and thoughts. It's a habit. Isn't that interesting? It's a habit. Identifying with this self is a habit. In this word identification, we identify with something, fill in the blank. We identify with a role, a desire, a thing. Selfing is a process that has a story or idea attached to it. A me and an object. A separation. This dual, this is where our duality with the world comes from. So before I continue in direct, talking about this selfing activity and the way it creates um, the dukkha, I want to just recognize what the Buddha was concerned about and what you hear in Ajahn Chah is that this doesn't erase the importance of the sense of self. Recognizing that that we are individuals with individual identities, that we do come from different backgrounds, racial, cultural, financial, different circumstances. We have different gender identities. And on one level, that we want to be able to see through where this might be causing us suffering, that we can, could possibly avoid. But on the other hand, recognizing that identity has a power to it. Recognizing that we each put the world together differently and that the identity that we come from, the history we have, has value. It has a different view on the world. And this is important. And there's many different ways of seeing the world. You know, there's a Western view, 
and many, each one of these isn't a singular view, so I can't even, you know, like there's a very personal view that may have different components to it. And this is important to recognize because the teachings around not-self don't contradict the truth about systemic racism and institutionalized prejudice and the way the way uh, identity is used and can be harmed when it's used inappropriately. I'm going to read you a little quote from Earthland Manuel. Although my teachers taught us the absolute truths of Zen practice, they seem to negate identity without considering the implications that identity can have for oppressed groups of people. The critique of identity overlooks the emotional, empowering, and positive effects of identity on those who are socially and politically objectified. There's another... um, There's another teacher, Jack Engler, who once said, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And it's really important to recognize that, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, we can let go of our identities when you're in the privileged class. Oh, we can all be identity blind. But that's not useful. Identity is to be valued and to recognize, but not in our own, for ourselves, is where we free it, where we see through where the identity is causing us suffering. It's not for the world to decide that. This is uh, from Tanisaro Biko. He says, The issue is not what is my true self, but what kind of perception of self is skillful and when is it skillful? What kind of perception of not-self is skillful and when is it skillful? A sense of self is an important part of the practice, especially a sense of self that encourages responsibility, heedfulness, and care. What he's saying here is very important. We need some sense of self a lot of times to interact skillfully with sila. Sometimes you have to do one thing at one stage and turn around and erase it at another. The path to the unconditioned is conditioned. In the Buddhist terminology, it's fabricated. In the attainment of awakening, you put aside both self and not-self. Donald Rothberg has a nice way of talking about the self that I like. He talks about thick self and thin self, that our practice is to see where we have a thick sense of self that's causing us to suffer. And I mentioned the ins- where our instincts come up and protect us and blend with the personal. But there's also many different ways our history comes in. 
You know, I mentioned the one, I am the one who doesn't get what I need. We can bring into the current moment a story about me, how I am a victim or I am the one who is right. I am the one who succeeds. I am the one who fails. And all of those, I mean, you can hear, you probably can register even as I hear it, that as I say it, and you hear it, that believing in any of those is the start of a source of dukkha. We also develop a sense of self around our roles and I and the internalization of projections from other people. I know when I started teaching, I was very deep in practice at the time and uh, my teacher asked me to start teaching and I was completely abhorrent at the idea because I was like, I don't want to take on that on. I don't want that identity. And it, how do we step into roles? How do we do our lives without identifying? This is an ongoing investigation. There's a great story. I don't know the veracity of it because I've heard it a few people down the line and relating to this teaching that um, Ajahn Chah, when Ajahn Sumedho started teaching in Thailand, he first asked him to teach and Ajahn Sumedho said okay and he got all prepared and he gave a great Dharma talk. Everybody loved it. And Ajahn Chah said, don't ever do that again. And it's like, okay, don't ever do that again. And then he gave him this instruction. Go into the hall and start teaching. Bring no notes and keep teaching until everybody has left. (laughs) And I guess there was one devoted Thai woman who sat there all night. So that is a very um, extreme way of uh, dropping your identity with a role. May, may it not be quite so uh, extreme. But think about the different roles that you've had in the process you may have had of letting go of them. Being a parent and then the kids leave. Being a student and then you graduate, being a caregiver, a teacher, a wage earner of some type, and then you retire or lose your job in some way, or change jobs to something else. Can you, uh, you may have felt, you can feel for yourself, the place where you thought this is, you were melded with that role. This is who I am. And that, that like, uh, uh, sort of like caught in your throat about like, uh, what am I now? This is such a great place to see the, the selfing activity. Having it in relationship to other people. I'm a, I have a partner. I don't have a partner. I have siblings, I have a friend, all the stories we tell. 
There's a couple of specific stories I want to share with you that I really like. One is, um, you know, that your story that you have a physical challenge and that therefore you can't do things. And it's been interesting in my life being around some people that have had physical challenges. One person I know who has been in a wheelchair his whole adult life. And we might have ideas about what someone can do. And he didn't buy into those ideas. And he was a PA who, um, he is a PA, and he went to Africa and was of service there. Had sort of a big, tired, rough road ready wheelchair and was able to travel everywhere and do everything. Not saying that everybody should do that, but it was interesting that ideas about what's possible. There's another, um, a few years ago I saw this on the internet, how we create stories about the different genders. And one of this particular one was showing, asking kids as they grew up, girls and boys, really young, first they asked really young girls and boys, okay, run like a girl. And the really young ones ran like heck, ran really hard. And then a little older, it started to change. And then after a while, it was sort of like some little prissy, prancy thing when they were told to run like a girl. And it's like, where does that come from? And then we take on that identity and that story. Each of us, when something difficult happens for us, how long do we identify with that difficulty and make that our story? James told a really tender story last night about someone who moved from one identity to a very different one. One that was actually served them and was useful and didn't have the suffering in it. Another interesting way that we can create a sense of identity is we take very impersonal conditions that happen and we pick them up and we make them personal. So, you know, by based on whether I like it or I don't like it, how it serves us or it doesn't, it's like have you being in the car and feeling like, dang, that red light just happened to me. Really? You know, or I've been in the driving and it's like, oh, all these people keep jaywalking and crisscrossing and like it's hard to drive because you have to keep waiting for them from this point of view. And then I get out of the car, I park the car, I get out and I jaywalk across the street. You know, it's like always this, this way that we sort of see the world and whatever's happening. Some, sometimes the new agey thing kind of amplified it. It's like, oh, this earthquake happened to me because I'm supposed to learn something from it. You know, it's like the earthquake didn't happen to you, really. 
This is what uh, the Buddha says. To, he was talking to Sariputra. He says, well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning, concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine, and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation of wisdom. Rumi says this in a slightly more poetic way. He says, In every breath, if you're the center of your own desires, you'll lose the grace of your beloved. But if in every breath you blow away your self-claim, the ecstasy of love will soon arrive. In every breath, if you're the center of your own thoughts, the sadness of autumn will fall on you. But if in every breath you strip naked just like a winter, the joy of spring will grow from within. All your impatience comes from the push for gain of patience. Let go of the effort and peace will arrive. All your unfulfilled desires are from your greed for gain of fulfillments. Let go of them all and they will be sent as gifts. Fall in love with the agony of love, not the ecstasy. Then the beloved will fall in love with you. When we try to own or control the world, we experience the world as our enemy to be conquered. We're set up for this bumping up against. The more we have, often the more we have to protect, control. There's a story in the suttas about a king who he lets go of his whole kingdom and he comes and he practices with the Buddha. He becomes a renunciate. And he's off practicing in the woods and he's just sitting under the root of a tree, uh, the roots of a tree saying, ah, oh, bliss, bliss. And some monks come by and they hear him and they go, Oh, he's probably remembering all that wonderful food he used to get to eat and the wonderful consorts. And they go to the Buddha and they tell him about this king going, bliss, bliss. And the king says, I don't think so, but let's check. And so the, he calls the, old, the king, the previous king, Nala Renunciate, in and asks him, so what was all this bliss, bliss? And he's like... Oh, God, it's so blissful just having nothing. It used to be that I had to have guards outside my door and take care of everything in my door. I had to take care of all the people in my castles and my forts, and I needed guards all around them, and I had to guard the city and make sure everything in the city, and now I don't have to conquer, protect, do anything. I can just be here. He not only didn't have to defend the territory of I any longer, he didn't have to 
tend the territory of mine, and in the case of a king, the territory of the whole kingdom. Each time we defend the territory of I, me, and mine, we separate from the world and we go into a state of opposition. And we have have to manage this opposition with judgments and rationalizing and explaining I need this because I because I'm I think of myself I you know I need a single room because I'm a light sleeper and then I go to India and they're running generators under the window and it's like they don't care that you're a light sleeper honest it's like oh okay turns out this territory of I does not need to be as protected as I thought Views and opinions are another strong way way that we create self. I read that poem a couple days ago about may I be right. And I'll just read a couple of the lines just to... What is it in us that wants to be right? I have seen it turn a whole month, a whole life to ice. I have felt the chains of certainty. I have worn the shackles of listen to me. The shackles of being right. Of creating this solid sense of self. Kamala talked about equanimity as this learning to respond instead of being reactive. And reactivity, you might say, is the set of conditioned thoughts, body sensations, emotions, and the resulting actions and speech that are predetermined by the history of me, by our identification with a particular self. Responding, on the other hand, is the mindful response to what is happening right now. The conditions as they present themselves, right here. Dilgo Kense Rinpoche says this, The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy that is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. To take a consistent position on anything, to hold on to our opinions, We have to factor out so much. We have to just isolate right here. And each time we retreat into this selfing, we sacrifice the freshness, the immediateness, the sacredness of the world. 
we move from ease into suffering. You have felt this when you have those moments when everything is vivid, as Temple said, when it's alive. And then you sacrifice that for wanting something. And it's useful to recognize this recognizing of the self is a big step in practice. Sometimes we can, it can feel really scary. Letting go of our sense of self can elicit quite a strong sense of fear or anxiety because the ego, which has been in control for a very long time, can't exist in this open, direct, simple contented experience of what's here right now. It doesn't have a role. Ironically, there's nothing afraid, there's nothing to be afraid of losing because it wasn't here to start with, but it doesn't seem to know that. It's very, very concerned about its role, this strategizing to take care of us. So we have to very gently thank it for doing a good job, thanking it for taking care of us. Anam Tupton talks about his self as an attendant that helps take care of the things that need to take care of. Tells him what to eat, what clothes to put on in the morning, when to get a jacket. But it's just an attendant that now the strategies have been simplified down to just what's necessary. To let this activity of selfing occur, but without confusion. Ajahn Amaro, I think, said to pick up the conventions and use them without confusion. That's our task. And we're afraid that somehow we won't function if we don't have this self, that we aren't going to get what we need. And it's good to keep, just keep playing with it and see. Let the attendant show up when it's needed. And when it's not needed, thank it for its great service and for your help. And I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Sokni Rinpoche says, I'm not saying you're not real, just not that real. It's like, yeah, there's a self here, but it's not the solid one we think that was here. The Buddha said, in whatever way they conceive of self, the truth is ever other than that. That conceiving I am is a conceiving, he says. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. And so on. Any way we conceive, it is ever other than that. I imagine many of you are familiar with another quote from Dogen, where he says, studying the Buddha way is studying oneself. Studying oneself is to forget oneself. We do all this practice looking carefully at the way the self comes into being. And as we look more and more carefully, it's less and less convincing. 
And the Buddha gave many, many instructions about how to look at this process of creating the sense of self. He talked about the five skandhas, or aggregates, it's often translated on. Seeing this arising of form and vedna and perceiving and consciousness and this volition and seeing each one as they arise. If you're familiar with it, that's great. If you're not, you didn't need to memorize that list to do this. We talk about being directly with experience, the six sense gates. You'll hear more about that as a way of cutting through the way we, the manufacturing of self. Sometimes we talk about understanding karma as a way to see the impersonal nature of what's happening in the present moment. Compassion, as I mentioned earlier, that we're not alone that it's not just us, it's not just me experiencing this in a separate way. There's a couple specifics that I want to offer about practicing with this here as we go along. The first one are a couple simple practices that are from Philip Moffat. Actually, first I'm going to read you a quote from the Buddha where he says, Therefore, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. So this is his instructions. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. What is it that is not yours? Material form is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And he proceeds to go through the aggregates. But the important part is he's saying, abandon the idea, it's yours. And that holds true for all these instructions I want to offer you, these different approaches. And see what resonates for you. So one of them that I've sort of mentioned already with that poem from Rosemary Watula Tromer is letting go of being right. Letting go of being right. There have been times in my life where it has saved me innumerably to ask myself the question, would I rather be right or would I rather not suffer? It's a hard one. We like being right. It makes us feel solid and formidable and the the sense of self has a lot to do. It gets very activated around it. But would you rather not suffer? Another one is letting go of judging our success by how well we fulfill our own desires. I'll read that again. Letting go of judging our success by how well we fulfill our own desires. We have this tendency to judge how things are going by, did I get what I wanted? We forget to ask, am I more content? Am I happier? Am I kinder? Do I feel more free? Those are the important questions. Not, did I get what I want? And then the last one from uh, Philip is, letting go of being the star of your own movie. Anybody been the star of their own movie here? 
<laughs> narrator, the nar- internal narrator, all your movie being narrated by by yourself, to yourself, to anyone who would listen. It's so interesting. That is a way we keep the self going, is with this narration. Sometimes we can have the idea that the dissolving of the self is going to come in one big flash. That's seldom the case. It's more like a slow erosion, a slow pulling away of this belief. And sometimes we look over the precipice and think, oh, I'm just going to fall in. There's going to be nothing there. And then kind of maybe nothing really happens. But you notice that you don't believe in it quite the same way. Sometimes people do let go of it a little bit, like a chunk at a time. Disidentifying with the I. It's just about seeing that I, that me, that mine as it arises. Sometimes I use the phrase, I think it might have come originally from Pema Chodron, when I am hooked by the I. I say, I am hooked. I'm hooked by the I. And then I can really feel that selfing activity happening. And then you can track it till it's gone. And watch when that story about me dissolves and what's left in the space after it. This is very important part of our practice to stay with the arising of the self until it fades away. This, the I, we can watch it come up. Each time there's a wanting, we can pay attention to the wanting or we can pay attention to the sense of the I that's doing the wanting. See if you can play with that. I want this or I don't want this. And then see if you can turn and look, oh, there's a sense of me that is arising simultaneously with that. Notice when the thought comes up or an urge comes up, is there a thick sense of self? And does it pass? You might notice if you're playing with Vedana that the Vedana comes up and then there's a moment when it moves from just pleasant to unpleasant to the wanting or the not wanting and the sense of I arises with it. How do we tell if we're not, if we're free of suffering, uh, free of the selfing? It often is very simple, like not complex. Like we're just not having a complicated experience. A sunset that just happens and there's no wanting more, there's no need to take a picture of it, there's no need to tell anybody about it or narrate it. It's just a sunset and it's pleasant. And that's it. That vivid neutrality the temple spoke of. We may notice a sense of patience, a lack of urgency, a contentment of not needing anything right now. 
No greed, no aversion, no delusion in a moment. We might notice that the past doesn't have a grip on us. When the sense of forgiveness arises in us, when we are able to forgive, that is the sense of self releasing its story. Generosity and compassion are expressions of freedom from self in the present moment. Ease and contentment are the result of the practice. I'll end with a poem again from the Teragata. This is from Mitakali, Friend of the Dark. I was always smart. If the path was good, I figured it would make me even smarter. One night while meditating, I watched my thoughts piling themselves up all around me. My mind built a house out of all those thoughts, then filled that house. Soon it was a whole city, a whole world. Oh, my beautiful, beautiful thoughts. Who will look after you after I'm gone? I swear I could weep. I could weep for all of you. My sisters, do you really want to be free? Are you ready to leave behind all your precious little houses and make your home everywhere? It's not as hard as you might think. First stand up, then walk out the door. So... Let's let the words settle for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention and hearing the Dharma. We'll have a walking period and then come back for the final sitting and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.